I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll start looking at life after Tariff Man and look forward to what the Biden administration is going to do on trade. Plus, we'll explain how trade policy will combine with President Biden's climate agenda. And The Trade Guys will give their take on what to expect from the Buy American executive order President Biden is expected to sign next week. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Trade guys are back. It is a new dawn in America without Tariff Man. Tariff Man is gone. He's gone back to Florida to Mar-a-Lago. We don't know what he's doing there. I guess he's playing golf. That's what Tariff Man does when Tariff Man's not tariffing. But Bill, he tariffed on the way out, didn't he? Yes. To my surprise, literally, I think the last or almost the last thing he did was to remove aluminum tariffs on the UAE and substitute for a quota. So this came out Wednesday morning as he's en route to Mar-a-Lago. This announcement came out. It's He just can't let go of the tariffs, you know, it's just parting shot. I mean, this was a removal, not an imposition, but he spent four years obsessing over them and is still doing it. Who knew that UAE had aluminum? You know, it's one of those things. There's a lot of products from a lot of places, but before we uh, bid farewell to Tariff Man, I think it's only fair to say that the trade guys as a concept, as a program, probably wouldn't have existed without President Trump. This is true. And the focus he gave to trade policy in general, but he's the he's the person who moved it from the back page of the business section to front page news. And that created the interest in what we wound up delivering for four years. So got to pay respects on that. No question about it, Scott. I mean, and, you know, I think one of the things that President Trump did was not only, you know, brought it to the front page of the media, newspapers, and, you know, all of our consciousness, but we all learned a lot about trade and about supply chains and about global competition and about what it means for the United States and what the U.S. role is in it. And, you know, we've talked about this you know, nonstop on our program. And I think we're all the smarter for it. You know, Bill's scowling over here, so I'm I'm waiting for him to jump in. But, you know, I know that I learned a tremendous amount from talking to you guys about President Trump's policies on trade, the way it ran through Congress, the way it ran through the American people, various industries. I even learned that, you know, other people pronounce aluminum, aluminum. I didn't know that there was aluminum in the UAE. Can't imagine what they're doing with it there. Cheap energy. There's actually a a number of aluminum plants in, in the region. Making aluminum consumes lots of energy. And that's, you know, cheap oil central. Yes, the conversion from bauxite to uh, raw aluminum is highly energy intensive. And so only when you have a cheap source, the UAE has natural gas as a very cheap source of energy that's there. Quebec has hydroelectric power. The Pacific Northwest of the United States has hydroelectric power. That tends to be where aluminum is processed. And it's really driven, it's driven by the cost because it's so energy intensive. It's really been the most fascinating ongoing policy discussion I think probably during the Trump administration, because, you know, it it obviously 
goes to the America first, you know, agenda. It goes to the globalist versus isolationist, you know, discussion. We all certainly had to really debate our business practices and our national security practices, you know, and ideals through this. At the end of the administration, you had two major trends in public opinion. One was much more generally favorable attitude toward trade and trade agreements by Americans versus four or two, even 10 years ago. And the second is skepticism about China. And President Trump was a driving force in changing America's opinion on China. China did a lot to help that that opinion worsen. But those two trends are likely to persist, that uh, Americans have embraced the world economy and world trade to a greater extent than before, but they are suspicious of China to a much greater extent than even just a few years ago. And that's a bipartisan thing. Yes. I wouldn't give him credit for the first trend. I mean, I think he did he did everything he could do to shrink trade rather than do- Well, it could have been a reaction to him, you know, as well. You're right about the trends. I, I If I were going to give him credit, it would be for changing the conversation. I mean, he certainly has gotten people to force people to look at it when they had previously ignored it and force people to look at it in, in a different way. Where And I think you're right about China, although I give the Chinese- a lot more of the credit or blame, if you will, for that focus. The things they've done, uh, and not trade-related so much as human rights-related, I think have contributed to this huge shift in public opinion away from sympathy for China, particularly the uh, the Chinese government. And and they're you know they're beginning to throw their weight around in ways that hurt our interests, but actually also hurt their own people. That's not going to change. Although I would note that in all of the Things that came out during the inaugural day, the 17 executive orders that Biden issued, as near as I can tell, none of them had anything to do with trade. And That's right. in the various statements that the administration has put out so far, I seem to have ended up on a mailing list where these things arrive. None of them are talking about trade. So, Scott, maybe we're heading back to the business section. Well, back to oblivion, which wouldn't wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> Let's hold on there for a second, though, because I don't think we're headed quite back to the business section. You know, we are... On the front page, we've got Janet Yellen and Tony Blinken, who are going through their confirmation hearings, and Janet Yellen is vowing a full array of tools to curb China's abusive practices, and she's not just talking about their human rights issues. She's not talking about the South China Sea. She's not talking about cyber. She's talking about bilateral trade issues, uh, among other things. So, you know, we've turned the page. We've got a new president. And we still got a lot to talk about when it comes to trade, guys. And that's why everybody's tuning in to the trade guys to hear what you guys have to say. So Janet Yellen, Tony Blinken, this is, you know, the first thing that we're going to hear about when it comes to trade and U.S. policy from the Biden administration. So what's your hot take here? First comment I make is just having been through the confirmation process myself, they've obviously learned the main lesson of going through a confirmation hearing, which is grovel. So Bill, you know what my kids would call that? The having been through a confirmation process myself, they would say that's a full flex. That's the, the full flex. <laughs> the main thing you learn up there and the main thing I learned in 20 years on the Hill is how to grovel. Uh, the biggest mistake you can make in a, in a confirmation hearing is disagree with the person asking you the question. Uh, and they did a very good job of not disagreeing. That's not to say they were lying. I, I mean, I think they were sincere in their statements. No, they're both just very skilled diplomats and, and very adroit, you know, Washington, you know, operators. 
Well, you make a decision at the front end. You basically decide, do you want to have a debate or do you want to get confirmed for the job? And if you want to get confirmed for the job, you don't have a debate. <laughs> it's about that simple. That's exactly right. And they've learned that very well. They've been down this road before. They did a good job. I think what remains, I don't think they were lying. I think they were telling the truth. The question will be priorities. I mean, if you listen to what Yellen said about currency, which was came up in currency manipulation, which was an obvious question. She was careful. And she said that, you know, she was had no sympathy for countries that deliberately manipulated their currency. Well, the key word there is deliberately. And of course, that's what we've accused some countries of doing, which is, you know, a, a question subject to an investigation. But she didn't say all currency manipulation was wrong. She said deliberate currency manipulation was wrong, which means you know, it remains to be seen how aggressive they're going to be in, in going after it. I don't think anybody asked her specifically what she was going to do about Vietnam. Well, so is this going to be her issue? I mean, the headlines are that, you know, Financial Times said that Yellen vows to take a hard line against currency manipulation. And, you know, one of the questions we have is, is will she reclaim Treasury's jurisdiction over currency issues? Uh, I think that was part of the signal that she wants to. And I I'm inclined to think that there won't be a big fight about that. I don't see the incoming Commerce Secretary putting up a struggle over that issue. I mean, the issue for Commerce will be, because it only comes up when they're doing a subsidy investigation, is will they continue to, to look at it when new investigations come along? And, you know, I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I, I suspect that it will fade quietly away, that they won't announce they're not going to do it anymore. But it wouldn't surprise me if they don't do it anymore. And that seeds the leadership back, as you said, to Treasury. Which is where it was for a long period of time and, and managed reasonably effectively at Treasury. So, And jealously guarded. The shift to commerce was came as a surprise to those of us that had fought those wars in the past. Treasury and previous administrations held on to this with a death grip. They would never let anybody even talk about currency. You know? And and you go you you cut it would come up and on hearings on the hill people would ask about you know how do you think how do you feel about a strong dollar, or how do you feel about a weak dollar depending upon signals at the time and invariably, if you were not in the Treasury Department the response would be well I have to defer to the Secretary of the Treasury on that he or she provides the administration position end of statement so essentially what Yellen signaled though yesterday is that she's. Her comments represented a continuation of the Trump administration's stated hard line on currency issues, no? Well, yes, but it remains to be seen how she'll apply it. I mean, the, the two, there were two countries that the Trump administration determined were manipulating, Vietnam and Switzerland. And we'll see what she does. I would be surprised if the Biden administration decides to do something about Switzerland. Those pesky Swiss. Well, <laughs> who do every once in a while present an open and shut case for currency manipulation, like in the public statements about taking the franc to the euro. Yeah, well, their explanation is they're just keeping up with the euro. But, you know, you can buy that or not. Uh, the Vietnamese case is actually interesting because they really launched a full court press with Trump. You know, they had the I guess it was the prime minister called the president at least once. And they had various ministers calling the secretary, calling USG, they called Lighthizer, they called Mnuchin, they called Papeo. I mean, they had a full court, very high level diplomatic press on this. And at least in the short one, it worked. I was expecting tariffs out of 
the Trump people against the Vietnamese, and it didn't happen. So we'll see what Yellen does, because, you know, currency manipulation in that context really is, uh, I think it's going to be her call more than it will be USTR's call. I thought it was interesting during White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki's first briefing yesterday that, you know, several of the White House reporters, and some of them are new to the beat, uh, you know, kept asking, you know, well, who is President Biden going to call first? You know, who, which, which foreign leaders is he going to call? And, you know, I mean, the answer to that is he's going to call all of them and he's going to call our allies first, which is what she said. And she said it in a much nicer way than I just did. And President Biden's first call is to Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada next week. You know, I'm assuming they're going to talk about uh, what is it, Scott? Al- aluminium or aluminum? Aluminium. Aluminium. And the Keystone XL pipeline. And, I guess, that, and that too. And that too. Probably you know, extradition of the Huawei person, Meng, who's still right. in, stuck in Vancouver in her multi-million dollar two houses, I think, actually. She, yeah, there's, they've got lots to talk about. But there's an interesting story about those calls that I was reading. Apparently, there's a traditional order, the order in which you're supposed to call people. And uh, this came out because when Trump arrived on his first day, they presented him with a list of people he was supposed to call and said, here's the order. Yeah, you're supposed to call the British prime minister first. Well, and he said, I'm going to do what I want. And he ignored the order. And it sounds like I think I think Canada is usually before the UK. Mm, Maybe that might be right. I think that he's going with Trudeau. But and then it'll be interesting to see when he calls Boris Johnson, who, you know, was a Big Trump fan. It'll be interesting to see uh, when that one shows up on the list. Well, definitely going to be interesting to see. One call that uh, I don't think he's going to be making anytime soon is to President Putin. Uh, Probably not. That doesn't seem to be high on high on the list. Of course, you saw today's paper. Putin now has other things to worry about. Navalny is back in Russia. And even though he's in jail, he's putting out wonderful videos, including one in this enormous palace slash casino that allegedly was built for uh, Putin. All right. Shifting away, one of the executive orders that you mentioned, Bill, and then there were 17 of them yesterday, was on climate. And President Biden has reinstituted his commitments to the United States to the Paris Agreement. And that involves, of course, USMCA. So how likely is it that Biden will pursue adding the Paris Agreement to agreements enforceable by USMCA. I don't think it's as big a deal as uh, there's some senators who wrote about that. I mean, Canada and Mexico are already members, so they already have made commitments. It's not asking them to do anything new. It just would make it an enforceable thing within USMCA. But I don't think either of them have any intention of violating their commitments. So it, it's more symbolic than real. Yeah, well, I guess the larger question to both of you is how is trade policy going to interact with climate policy? Obviously, you know, climate policy is a really big deal to the Biden administration, and it's going to be one of the, you know, three or four themes that's going to run throughout all of Biden's policies and government. How is trade going to be impacted by that? Well, let me, let me step back just a little bit, because there's a reason that the Paris Accords in, in USMCA has come up. And that is since, I believe, 2006, so that's beginning with the U.S.-Peru FTA, one of the provisions in the environment in the environment chapter of U.S. bilateral free trade agreements is that any environmental or natural resources-related treaty that both parties are a signatory to 
can use the trade dispute settlement system to enforce disputes on the treaty. So uh, the, the classic example is the CITES Treaty. The CITES Treaty governs trade in endangered species. Now, it's a treaty that has a lot of signatories, but no, uh, no real strong enforcement mechanism. And so what our negotiators did was allowed you to use the FTA dispute settlement system to settle disputes for environmental treaties signed by both parties. So that, that is why that's the interest, including the Paris Accords in USMCA that has signatories. The commitments in, in the Paris Accord could be enforced using the dispute settlement mechanism of USMCA. So that's the background. But there are, there are several things to think about here. The first is, I think we probably got to figure out whether the Paris Agreement is a treaty or not. This was came into effect in the end of 2015, as I recall. And the Obama administration, President Obama, signed it in sort of summer-ish 2016. And the question of whether or not it was a treaty was actually never addressed. Now, the UN thinks it's a treaty. Uh, it seems to you know follow the language of treaties according to, to the Vienna Convention on Treaties. If it's a treaty, then it needs to be ratified by the Senate. But the fact that it was never sent to the Senate made it easy for President Trump to withdraw. It's making it easy for President Biden to resign. So, but, but we probably ought to, we ought to square that away and decide whether it is or not. And if it's not, what is it? And how do we operate against the commitments that the president wants to undertake? Second thing is that, and for me, the more important issue here is these climate change treaties tend to become obsolete pretty fast, mostly because technology changes and the world changes. So my recommendation is somebody get Daniel Jurgen's new book, The New Mac, and read it. It'll take you about two days. It's a it's a terrific read. And and listen to the podcast, Andrew, that you and I did with him, the reopening podcast. But Jurgen points out that, that the geopolitics is changing so fast because the underlying technology for energy and climate is changing to, so fast. And so as we move forward with commitments like the Paris Accords, we ought to figure out whether the Paris Accords is still the right way to approach this or whether it's become obsolete. And uh, I think there's an argument on both sides that we probably ought to settle. I guess my reaction to that is I, I think forcing the issue of whether it's a treaty or not is dangerous. I, I don't see the Senate ratifying it if it's a treaty. I mean, I think it's, it would be very hard for Biden to get 67 votes and for it under present conditions, uh, given uh, the state of the Republican Party at the moment, it's probably, I think they'll probably just simply maintain it's an agreement and we'll see. Uh, I, I don't know that they want to spend an enormous amount of political capital getting something ratified where the commitments are sort of self-imposed and voluntary. To go back to your question, I think uh, where the rubber will meet the road to use a cliche on climate and trade will be on on, on border adjustment measures. Uh, you know, one of the, the trade issue that comes up is if you're going to insist domestically that our manufacturers clean up their act and start moving away from fossil fuels and, and put in things to uh, re reduce emissions, you know, further than they've been reduced, that, that potentially puts them in a competitive disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis their companies in other countries uh, that are not required to do that and continue to make their products using basically dirty or polluting technologies. And I think there will be a, there already is in, in, in Europe in particular, uh, a strong movement to develop uh, what are called border adjustment measures, which are basically tariffs or, or taxes that would that would offset the advantage that those products would gain 
if their country has not, it's not so much that they haven't subscribed to the uh, Paris Agreement, because I think now we have everybody that's, now that the U.S. is back in, I think everybody is subscribed. It's whether they're meeting their goals or not, and, and whether their companies are continuing to be able to manufacture, you know, outside the self-imposed strictures of the agreement. And this is one of these things, because it's a global problem, the bright answer is a global solution. You know, a further negotiation in which everybody agrees to do this the same way. Otherwise, you have sort of competitive tariff policies as countries try to, you know, put each other out of business on the grounds of environment. And that really ends up then just being an excuse for protection, which is not really good for anybody. So it's going to take a long time to sort this out. But Bill's raising an important point, which is that trade policy needs to figure out how to cope with problems of the commons. These, these true global problems. We've tried. We've struggled. Frankly, the, the environmental provisions that I mentioned in our FTAs don't do much. The WTO has struggled for now decades, two decades, with the problem of fish subsidies, fishery subsidies, which is a classic problem of the commons and to ver- with very little result. Uh, but it, it's an area where for trade policy to be relevant into the future, it's going to have to be able to address things like this. And there's some evidence that I mean, unilateralism doesn't, isn't very successful. I mean, there, there's a precedent for this. The EU some years ago tried to, uh, in, in the name of preserving the environment and, and uh, tried to tax airlines arriving in EU countries based on the amount of fuel they were uh, consuming on sort of trans, mostly transoceanic voyages or, well, in the case of China coming, you know, across Asia and Europe. And it was an effort to try to force them to develop more fuel-efficient flight plans and more fuel-efficient planes. The result, though, was that that a lot of other countries, particularly the Chinese, simply said, well, we're going to do the same thing to your airlines, which was, you know, an, a sensible response. Uh, but that was the end of that initiative, you know, because there's a lot of blowback from the airlines uh, everywhere about that. It's a problem that needs to be tackled collectively, I think. What Biden will probably do is have a discussion with the EU, at least there, about how to do it in parallel or in tandem, and then see if they can build out that solution to other countries as well. So finally, I wanted to ask you all, um, in addition to the executive orders that came out on day one, there's many more to come. President Biden is preparing to sign an executive order that talks about Buy American, and that may come as soon as next Monday. It's a continuation from the Trump administration. Biden is to use executive authority in the Buy American area to do what? What is this exactly going to do? And what What is this symbolic of? What do you guys think about this? Well, look, we, we don't know because we haven't seen the details, but yeah. the bumper sticker overall for Buy America is sounds good, doesn't do much. Okay. Explain that. So, so because I mean, I like Buy America. I mean, you know, as you know, I only buy my whiskey from Kentucky. Um, that's in America. You know, I buy my cars. They're 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 not American cars, but they're made in America. They're you know, we all like buying American things. So, like, what's the deal here, guys? The Buy America provisions are about government procurement only. Most government procurement and things like infrastructure, highway construction, those kinds of things, already. Uh, basically buying Americans. 85% of federal procurement is domestic now. So the marginal benefit from additional Buy America is vanishingly small. Uh, in, in some cases, what the U.S. government buys that is not from U.S. sources is bought overseas, uh, stocking embassies or 
Wait a minute. It depends a little bit on how you count. In percentage terms, it, it, it's not very much. But if you're Joe Biden and you're about to launch a trillion dollar infrastructure program, yes, and you're going to say that infrastructure, uh, all the stuff you're going to buy for that program has to be domestic. Well, I mean, 95 percent of it was going to be domestic anyway. But, you know, if it's a trillion dollars, that's a lot of dollars that are going to go into the U.S. economy. So in percentage terms, it's not incrementally a big step. I mean, having a big program uh, is going to have a big impact, but it doesn't change the the policy uh, significantly. Yeah, a big incremental spend would be incremental. That's great. The two issues that come up and, and, and Lighthizer started this one was in the name of bringing reshoring and bringing supply chains back on shore. Do you want to either drop out of the WTO government procurement agreement, which he did not propose, although he talked about, or do you want to do what, what he did propose, which is to remove some of the entities that are covered by the government procurement agreement? I mean, the way the agreement works is if you join, and the United States has, you promise to provide open level playing field procurement for foreign versus domestic procurement for the federal agencies or the state agencies that you list in your accession. So most countries, for example, exclude their defense ministries because they want to make sure they have, you know, domestic capability of uh, domestic stuff. Lots of countries exclude the national railroad system if they have one, you know, or the national airline, they have one. We don't have a national railroad or a national exactly, you know, but so we don't, we don't do that. But what Lighthizer initiated at the WTO was a request to withdraw from our government procurement agreement accession, a long list of stuff, most of it uh, medical related PPE stuff, that uh, he didn't want to any longer have leave the door open for foreign procurement. And of course, the way this this works is, you know, there's no free lunch. If you're going to withdraw, the other countries come back and say, well, you're hurting us. Uh, we're entitled to compensation. And then there's a negotiation over, you know, how much you have to pay in order to withdraw. That didn't get very far, but, you know, there's, a, there's an interesting footnote to this. There's a time limit on this. And I think that the administration has, I think, until something like March 27th to either conclude the negotiations or withdraw the request. So this is not something that can be postponed. You know, the other countries can start talking about retaliation after March 27th if this is not settled. So and I don't know whether the EO is going to cover that or not. But if it doesn't, they're going to have to face it fairly soon, one way or the other, because Lighthizer, you know, he started this ball rolling and Biden can stop it. It's not like it's irrevocable, but somebody has to make a decision. Guys, this has been a terrific first podcast of the Biden administration. We'll have to come up with a nickname for President Biden. We don't know what that nickname is yet, but this has surely been a pleasure talking to both of you. And we will continue to have a lot more fun as uh, we learn more about the Biden administration's trade policies. That's for sure. Thanks, Andrew. Looking forward to it. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it.
You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.